Up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been speaking very loudly about some things that people care very much about. And he's been using this phrase, the kingdom of God. It's not a great translation of it, really. Uh, I think that what he really means is the rule of God and the reign of God. And before you accuse me of being semantical, you know there's a big difference between the image of God as a king and God as someone who rules our lives, I think. And these people are listening to him talk about this kingdom and wondering how this nobody from Nazareth, a place from which no good can come, this nobody working man is going to bring about this glorious revolution. And I like to think that when Jesus is, is talking about the kingdom of God, there's a nice pause in the middle of the sentence. And imagine their anticipation when Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like, and they're waiting to hear him say, you know, David riding in on horseback, crushing the oppressors under his feet. Elijah, you know, the prophets. Moses returning with his staff to bury the Egyptians under the waters of the Red Sea. During that pause, they think that something big is going to happen. And then Jesus fills in the blank with things like yeast in bread. A pearl that this man finds and then sells everything he has to get. Or a man who, quite idiotically, really buries treasure in the middle of a field and then forgets where the treasure is and then sells everything he has to buy the field. And it's like a fishing net. And it's like when the fishermen sit on the dock and they throw out all the fish that they don't want to eat and they keep the things they want. Imagine their disappointment when they hear that it's not a place where uh, the oppressive Romans and and Herodian soldiers aren't crushed under the mighty hand of God. You mean to tell us, Jesus, I can see them saying now, that, that success for us, that triumph for us, that success for God's chosen people is, is, is something hidden and overpriced. And, and God's reign is like a mustard seed? So you've got to understand back then, they didn't have microscopes. They didn't know about germs or subatomic particles. So Jesus is trying to imagine the smallest thing he can think of. The tiniest thing there is, is the kingdom of God. Confusing for the people of his day. And it ought to be confusing for us too. Disorienting, disruptive. He offers them a new version of triumph and a new version of success. And it comes as no surprise when I say to you that we as the church and we as human beings need some new models for success, don't we? I mean, we're all pretty successful people in here, but all of us wake up on some days, a lot of days, I'll bet, and don't feel successful. All of our achievement, acquisition, all the wonderful things that we've done aren't quite enough. And I'm speaking as a, as a fellow traveler, friends. And nowhere do I see that more apparent than in our adolescence 
in our teens. You know, they're caught in that liminal space between childhood and adulthood when they're working out so much. We put them through really good educations and college counseling folks are reporting that following these good educations, they're going off to college and many of them are melting down in numbers never seen before. According to Psychology Today, uh, adolescents, particularly older adolescents, are five to eight times more likely to suffer from depression than they were 50 or 60 years ago. It's a complicated problem, I know, with a lot of, a lot of uh, causes. But we in youth work have a hunch sometimes that, that this problem is closely linked to our culture's ideas of success. And I know that the parents in here, uh, parents in here are, are great about telling their kids they love them no matter what, and you're great about, about trying to teach them what real success is and bringing them to places like this. But you know, they're, they're inundated with information in, in a way that's unprecedented. Their iPhone and their iPad are extensions of their brain. Any information you want about anything is readily available. And that means you can get information about how other people are doing, and you can get information that enables you to do uh, the horrible thing that we all do and compare yourself to other people and begin to form these ideas of success that aren't terribly accurate. And these kids go off to college, and they get their first B on a paper. I would have been happy to get Bs on papers in college. <laughs> they break up with their first girlfriend or boyfriend. They aren't invited to join the sorority or fraternity or club of their choice. Life in this world doesn't work out like they thought it would. Success suddenly has to be reconfigured and they melt down, they are discovering. So I think today Jesus gives us an alternative version of this in the gospel. And it's not easy to tease, it's not hard to tease this out. Fulfillment of God's reign in this life is, of course, not found in huge things like conquering armies and kingdoms and power. By extension, it's not found in social and economic power. It's not found by, by taking kids off on exotic uh, mission trips or having huge concert hall churches filled with people's people, but it's found in small things, even tiny things, Jesus tells us. So if we're going to spend our lives as Christ followers, if we're going to spend our lives uh, pursuing and carrying a faith that helps us to get what we want, or, or, or helps us to obtain this ever-elusive version of success that we have, then we blind ourselves to, be able, to being able to witness the reign of God herself present here and now. Jesus is telling us God's reign is the smallest thing that you know of, he tells them. God's reign is unexpected. God's reign is confusing. God's reign is con is ordinary. God's reign is every day. That was made plain to us in a multitude of ways this week. We decided to have our mission trip this, this year here in Atlanta. We stayed in the attic on the third floor. It's a really nice place to stay, by the way. 
And we had 18 kids. We had 13 from Holy Innocence Church and five from here, and we collaborated together along with uh, Father Joshua Case from Holy Innocence and Timothy Summers from Holy Innocence School and Harry Boone and Chris Protos. A young lady named Addie Washington from the uh, Dossison uh, Corps of Interns and Young Adult Interns. We spent our week uh, across town in West Atlanta uh, working on a, a sister Episcopal church, Church of the Incarnation, a place that's very dear to me because I worked there prior to coming here. And like many Episcopal churches, their, their numbers have dwindled and so have their uh, ability to... Uh, to do much of the renovation work that they need to do. And so we went over there and we helped them fix the place up for our friend, Rector Lee, Lee Curtis, and we gave them a leg up so they could uh, have some space where they could get rental income. We built a fence, we painted, we weeded, we even planted a little garden for them. And then we took some kids down to Emmaus House, the Diocese of Atlanta's uh, mission uh, for the working poor down near a very depressed neighborhood, uh, near what uh, is the TED, near the, the stadium. We got out of our in-town and our, our Sandy Springs bubbles and we spent, times, we spent time with folks whose lives are different and difficult in ways that we can't even imagine from where we sit. And we had all kinds of things happen. We asked our teens to answer some questions every night. And we asked the same questions. We said, what happened today? And what did you see in a new way today? And then how did what you see and what happened today, uh, how is that going to change how you are a follower of Christ in this world? And they told their stories. And one of the stories a young lady, uh, Julia, told one night, gave us a little pause at first, but then we talked about it. She worked with a little girl named Mary who had some uh, horrible developmental delays and kind of latched on to Julia. And Julia was very sweet to her. And, and we swam with the kids. And one day when Julia and Mary were swimming, Mary went underwater and got a little choked on the water. And Julia pulled her out of the water and held her. And, and Mary uh, hugged her neck and said, Thank you, Mommy. Thank you, Mommy, to her. And, and, then, and then when Julia told this story, four or five other kids raised their hand and said, Yeah, you know, it's the weirdest thing. The, the kid, Michael, I've, I've just been drawing with him and sitting with him and playing with him, and he, call, he called me Daddy today. This is a 14-year-old being called Daddy. And so we talked about it, and at first it kind of bothered us a little bit. You know, it didn't feel entirely appropriate. And then the kids figured out that this was their way of, of, of telling them that they felt safe, their way of telling them that they felt like these kids were truly present to them, their way of telling them that they loved them and that they felt loved by them. And see, I'm not so sure that anything happened down at a man's house this week that will, at least any time soon, result in, in anything that's measurable or even useful to anyone's vision of success. But tiny, tiny seeds were planted in some great soil in those small children and in the teens from this church and from Holy Innocence. In a very short time, we bonded together and we formed a, a community of mission in a place that, that this city and, and, and state and world sometimes seem to have forgotten. And our teens, the miracle was is that they knew how to be present with these kids. They don't have any good experience doing 
child care with inner city kids. They weren't expert teachers or subject matter experts in the gospel. But whatever state these kids were in, be they bored or rowdy or smelly or even sometimes uh, rambunctious, time and again I saw our kids being present to them and loving to them in ways that I never could have dreamed could have happened. God present in the smallest of us. But see, the miracle wasn't so much that our kids went down there and and were kind to these kids. It's not terribly surprising because they're great kids. They're kind, wonderful kids. But what they started learning is that these kids were ministering to them, were, were healing and changing places in their hearts that previously they felt were unreachable. These children were their priests in these interactions. These small people changed their lives. And see, Jesus, we have to remember, was a small person. He won no wars. He commanded no armies. And really, if you think about it, his track record for uh, retaining followers and loyalty was pretty lousy. He ended his ministry broke and alone, naked, nailed to a cross, tortured to death, buried in a borrowed tomb, the ultimate outsider, the ultimate nobody, the powers that be. But see, this offers even us hope today. Because it offers us hope. Because our hope as a church, we can learn, is not ultimately in packed pews, although those are nice. And it's not ultimately in, in offering plates stacked high with currency. But our hope is found in being a people who can come together and a people who can seek out the small people and places of this world. A a church that can form communities of mission within the church with common purposes. A church that can come together every week as we do and worship and pray and stop what we're doing in our busy lives and pray in this anachronistic, ancient manner and share the body and blood of Christ together. See, right here in this Episcopal church, right here and right now, just like the tiny mustard seed, and the Episcopal churches all across the country that are very different from ours, because you see, we're an anomaly in the Episcopal world. Our numbers stay flat or climb, but most Episcopal churches are struggling. Most Episcopal churches are shedding members and getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But see, there's hope in this too. Because packed within these churches, Jesus tells us, there is so much to offer. Like the mustard seed, there is still much flavor and much substance. Our future, I think, is found in what some people are are, are calling the slow church movement. And the slow church movement was started by uh, a couple of pastors. Um, One was named Christopher Smith. And Christopher Smith talks about how he was dismayed at what he calls the McDonaldization of the church. And he, he formed this critique around the fact that, that the successful churches, the bustling churches, are huge. They have, you know, 15,000, 20,000 people. And then they get so big that they build these franchises dotted around uh, the city and around the country. And there's some even that, that, that beam uh, their preachers in via screen. 
And so there's literally franchises of these churches. And this, this feeling that bigger is necessarily better in a church. And so he drew inspiration uh, from the slow food movement. And the slow food movement says that, that we're to eat things seasonally and things that are grown locally. And just because we want strawberries doesn't mean that we, it's good for us to ship them in from across the world. And so his version of church, these small churches are forming and people are, are coming to these churches and they're starting to make a difference right there in the neighborhoods that they live in. Instead of being consumers of religion, they're becoming communities of faith that are rooted in a specific place. The slow church is local. The slow church is in relationship. The slow church is full of groups that seek to better their immediate surroundings. Groups that seek to be a part of the world in what many would consider small ways. And see, what's frustrating about this is that success has to shift its definition in our head, doesn't it? Because it's hard for us to imagine that relationship and that mission can, in time, bring about God's reign. It's hard work. It sometimes doesn't seem like it's, it's, it's garnering any success. And see, if we stick with this image of the mustard tree, you know, we're not able to see the 12-foot tall tree with fragrant blooms happen immediately and our patience grows thin. But see, hope is in that Jesus promises that these blooms will come. And maybe that right there is what faith is. In spite of all the scientific evidence, in spite of the, the harsh world we see around us, in spite of how hard our lives can be, and how out of joint sometimes it is for us to stop what we're doing and come and pray and participate in this kind of worship. Jesus is telling us that these are the tiny seeds that when they're sown in God's name, when they're sown with God's love, when they're sown in, in one another in community, will always bloom, He promises us. I think some of that kind of planting took place this week right here in downtown Atlanta. And I think it's taking place right here too. So if we have fewer people in our churches, let's make sure that they're all very well connected with one another. Let's make sure that they're all focused on mission and focused on community and, and, and communities that are striving for deep roots. Jesus tells us when we plant these tiny seeds in the rich soil, things happen. They may not happen in the way that we expect, but Jesus promises they will in time, grow high, bloom plenty, and be infinitely greater than we ever could have asked for or imagined.